Amen. Amen. You can be seated, church. And He is good. He indeed is good. And it's so good to be together with you. I want to welcome you to Next, especially if you're a, a guest or a visitor. We extend a warm welcome to you. We're honored that you're here. I see that we're full. I see people standing in the back. It's a good problem we have. But I want to let you know, we've got a Saturday night service with plenty of room. Plenty of room Saturday night. So come on, y'all out on Saturday nights and join us there. Um, if you are a guest, if you're a visitor, we want to say good morning to you. My name's Joe, one of the pastors here. There's a card right in front of you. Um, we do us a favor. Let us know you visited with us. Uh, we'd love to welcome you. We'd love to give you a gift we got for you right up front. Just bring this card up front after the service. See one of our friendly people up there and um, our way of saying thanks for being here. Listen, if there's a way that we can help you or connect with you or serve you or bless you in any way, we'd love to do that. Um, we're so glad that you're here, and uh, we pray that you would know more than anything how much God loves you. You're, you've come on an interesting morning, a little bit of an interesting morning, in that we are in the middle of a series that we've called Hope and Holiness in a Hostile World um, that is examining the New Testament letter of First Thessalonians that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Greece northern Greece, in, in the city of Thessalonica, that was going through hard times. Um, nothing really much has changed for the church in 2,000 years. It's, it's the hope is still Jesus, and the world is always going to be hostile towards Jesus. And so um, it's very applicable to us today. But we're at the point in the letter where the Apostle Paul is explaining to them how things are going to end as God brings his redemptive plan and his kind of end times program into being. And so we're talking about the end of the world. And it's kind of, to be honest with you, it's a little bit of heavy stuff. You walked into today, if this is your first time, a little bit of like an end times seminar. Um, I got the whiteboard out. I'm going to be doodling. I'm going to be showing you, according to scripture, what we believe, what I believe God teaches and What's going to happen here in the future? And, and my prayer is, is that, that it would not just be, it's information. I'm going to give you a lot of information. And if all you did is, is walk out of here today with this information, then I've failed and we've missed the mark. Because what I really want you to be wrestling with for the next 30 minutes or so is this. God, what do you want me to do with this? All right? We always should ask the question, so what? Right? What, what's your next? What do you, God, what do you, what do you want me to do next with this? If this is all true, and this is really the way things are going to go, God, what do you want me to do? And so, um, we're going to pick right up where we left off two weeks ago. Uh, Pastor Ryan shared with us beautifully his heart and what God was doing in his life through his sabbatical. Two weeks ago, we started this, this, um, section in scripture, 1 Thessalonians 14. Uh, I'm going to read it to you again, and then we're going to put the words that we defined on the board. We'll construct the timeline. We've done this before in the past when we went through the book of Daniel, but we're going to do it again. And I want you to understand the, the, at the end, the last verse is really the key I want you to get here. Okay, uh, Verse 16 says this, The Lord himself will descend from heaven. Jesus is going to come down from heaven. There's going to be a shout. There's going to be an archangel's voice. I want you to remember these, these little, de these little uh, distinctives here. A shout, archangel's voice, and there's going to be a trumpet. There's going to be a trumpet sound. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are still alive, who are left, will be, Latin word here, rapturo, will be caught up, raptured up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And then he says this in verse 18, therefore, encourage one another with these words. So listen to me. If you're here and you're like, dude, I'm just really not into the end times thing, or you're here and you're like, oh, this already sounds way trippy and like really crazy stuff. Here's what I want you to know. God wants you to know his plans. He's in the Old Testament, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of prophecies about the first coming of Jesus. He wanted the world to know his son was coming. 
And, and in the Old Testament and now the New Testament, there are hundreds and hundreds of prophecies about Jesus' second coming. And so God wants his family to know how things are going to go. What are his plans and what's going to happen? And when you get done knowing all of this, here's what Paul says. So encourage one another. So like, so listen, when, when things are just so broken and busted in this world and you're looking around and you're just like, things are getting worse and financially you're struggling, physically you're struggling, emotionally you're struggling, relationally you're struggling. And you just say, you know what? This is so, why is this so broken? Why doesn't God do something about this? The answer is he has and he will. Right? That God has a plan he's putting together. This is not our home. He has a plan. And when you know Jesus and you know this plan, you have a bigger picture of where things are going. And you can then be like, you can take a breath and you can encourage one another with this. And you can be like, it's going to be okay. God is in control. God is good. And he's working things out for his good. Or was that just like a cute little song that we just sang? You are good. You are good. You, like it's, it's catchy. Or do you really mean it? Like, do you really mean he's good and he's in control and he's going to work out his good plan? And so um, I want to also clear up one thing that came up two weeks ago. Um, and I got asked it quite a bit, which means usually when I get asked something, the same question, it means I got to clear something up. So let me clear something up with this, this verse um, that says that the dead in Christ will rise first. Because you might say, well, I thought, you know, Aunt Betty died or my mom died or and I thought that they were with the Lord. Are they really still in the ground? And so it, it's important that you understand the distinction between the body being in the ground, but their soul or their spirit is with the Lord right now. This is what it says in Corinthians. Let me just read you 2 Corinthians 5. It says, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and be at home with the Lord. Right, And so that's what ends up happening. We had a funeral in here yesterday, and so the person was not here. Their body is in the ground. However, their soul or their spirit is with the Lord. Now, here's the, here's the interesting thing, and we just have to be okay with this. The Bible is kind of silent as far as what kind of state of being they are currently now with the Lord, right? Because if their body's in the ground, there's going to be this resurrection where they're reunited with their heavenly glorified body that they'll live in the rest of their life. What are they, like, are they just in spirit right now? God is a spirit, so it could be that. They're in a spiritual realm and they're in the spirit with God who is spirit. Um, or are they uh, with... Um, you know, uh, since God is outside of time and space, this is one, one theory, is that this resurrection has kind of already happened because God's not limited by time. We live on a spectrum of time. God is outside of time. So this thing's already happened and they already have their glorified. We, we don't know. The, the answer is we don't know. Here's what we do know. They're with the Lord, right? Their, their, their body is in the dirt, but they are with the Lord, okay? And so here's what I want to do. I want to I start putting on, on our board here... The timeline, um, we did this a couple years ago when we went through the, the Old Testament book of Daniel. The Old Testament book of Daniel is the prophetic book to the Old Testament, kind of like what Revelation is in the New Testament. They are both heavily prophetic, talking about how things are going to go. And, and, and so um, some of this might be a review for some of you, or it, the, some of this might is a developing thought. So I want you to understand as we unpack here in Thessalonians, some of these terms of, of what is happening, right? So the passage says what happens here is, let's just call these little X's as, as people in the ground, the dead in Christ, it says that Christ is going to return from heaven and the dead in Christ, it says, will be resurrected and will meet the Lord. And then we who are still alive standing here will also go up and meet the Lord here in the air. Okay. This glorious event is called the rapture. And, and I believe, and this is what we're going to talk about this morning, that it is the next event on God's timeline that is going to happen. And I believe that's what scripture teaches. And so I, I want to be clear, um, a lot of um, end times literature, a lot of these prophetic books, it's apocalyptic type language, there's a lot of metaphors and a lot of symbolism in it, and so there's some interpretive work that you have to do, and so some of it, because it's symbolism and metaphors, we have to hold loosely. 
and we say, oh, we're not going to fight over some of these things because we just, we just don't know. It's not so black and white that we're going to make dogmatic stands. I'll make one dogmatic stand that I will fight you over, and that is this. Jesus is coming back. That we know for sure. He came the first time, and Scripture says he's coming back again. We know he's coming back, and so that's a stand that we're going to make. But as far as the timing of when that's going to happen and when the rapture is going to happen, I'm not going to fight anybody over that. I'm going to share with you why I believe biblically and theologically and why I want to encourage you to really, for yourself, be convinced that this is the next event on God's timeline, this glorious event called the rapture. And so I want to, I want to put some of the, the words that we defined two weeks ago. We defined the rapture. We defined this. This is the resurrection that's going to take place where they receive their glorified body. And then we said it's going to, this rapture event, assuming that it does happen here, is going to usher in a seven-year period of time on the earth that is known as the tribulation. And if, if you can imagine millions of people just instantly disappearing, the complete and utter chaos that is going to exist on the earth as people just disappear. And Jesus talked about this, right? He said there's going to be two guys walking up the hill. One's going to be disappear. One's still going to be standing there. There's going to be two women working in the field. One's going to disappear. One's going to still be there. So Jesus described this sudden, this sudden being caught up or taken away out of the earth. And, and so um, uh, I want to talk to you today, and this is really the heart of the talk. I, I, if, if there was a name for this seminar, it would be this. Four reasons why... I believe, and I believe we should believe, in a pre-tribulational rapture um, and be ready for this. We should believe in it and live like it's, it could happen, right? And, and this is a big part of the so what, that if this is the next thing on God's timeline, that there is so much in Scripture that says we got to be ready, that we got to be ready, church. And there's also verses that talk about how the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, the people of Christ, the church of Christ could be fallen asleep, can just be sleeping on the job as to why we're here. And so I want to I talk to you about that today. here today, okay? So four reasons that I want to share with you why we should be ready for a pre-tribulational rapture, okay? Here's reason number one. Reason number one is this. It is during this tribulational period, during this seven-year period, that God again starts dealing with national Israel and therefore, the church is removed from the earth, okay? God will begin to start dealing with national Israel and therefore removes the church from the earth. Now, listen, it's important to understand where we're at in God's timeline. We are right here, okay? And we're just going to call this little bracketed period of time, scripture or theologians call this the church age, it is the period of time while God is working on the earth and the way he is revealing himself to the world is through his body, the people of God on the earth known as the church. The church is not a building. The church is not a service for an hour on Sunday. The church is a living, breathing organism that is organized locally and gathers together but has a purpose and a mission here. We are God's ambassadors, God's representatives of another kingdom. While we live in this kingdom, we want to tell the world about a better king and a better kingdom. And so we're here to represent Jesus. The, the word Christian literally means little Christ. And we're here to be little Christ, representatives of, of Christ here on this earth. Now, that wasn't the way it always was. Right? That wasn't the way it was. Who used to be God's people, God's representation here on earth? Israel. Right? We go back here into the Old Testament times, and it was Israel. Israel, if you remember, God came to Abram, before he changed his name to Abraham, God came to Abram and said, I'm going to make a nation out of you. You're going to be blessed. I'm going to give you sons. Look up, count the stars. Can you see them? That's how many your descendants are going to be. And so God's plan was to make a people for himself that were, same thing. Israel was to be God's representatives here on earth of a better God while all the other nations were following false gods. Israel was to be a representative 
representative of the true God, Yahweh. And they were, God said, listen, I'm going to bless you so that you can bless others, so that they can know the true God. And so Israel, for thousands of years, lived in rebellion against God, followed him, didn't follow him, followed him. God would raise up prophets, tell him to stop. And eventually, God sent the ultimate prophet, the ultimate Messiah, to come into the world, and Israel killed him and rejected God's son. And so God then turns, in a sense, from Israel and says, okay, I'm going to work through a new agency here on earth. I'm going to work through this thing called the church. And so I would, I would maybe draw it up kind of like this, okay, is that we're all the people of God. Originally, it was Israel. I keep wanting to put the R first. Y'all can read this, right? Just chicken scratch. <laughs> if I were to go back and show you the first service scribbles of this, you'd be like, what is that? Um, originally, it was Israel. Israel rejected God, and so, so then God starts moving now the church. But it's important to understand, Israel is not the church, and the church is not Israel. They are separate and distinct. This is what the Apostle Paul talks about in the book of Romans. Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. How God, Paul's heart was for his people, his Israel people, but you rejected God. And he uses the analogy of a tree. And he says, so God took the Gentiles, us, if you're in here and you're non-Jew, and, and grafted us into this this tree where we are part of the people of God, but separate and distinct. Israel is not the church. And I want you to know this because um, this first point is important. When I tell you that during the tribulation period, God now starts working with national Israel again during this period of time. In the book of Jeremiah, it says this. Let me read it to you. Alas, Jeremiah chapter 30. Alas, for that day is great, talking about this tribulation period. That day is great, so that none is like it. It is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. So there's a nickname that we have for this tribulation period. One of the nicknames for it is Jacob's trouble. Why is it called Jacob's trouble? Well, you remember Father Abraham had many sons, many sons of Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob. Jacob wrestled with God, and God changed his name from Jacob to Israel. And, and, and Jacob had 12 sons that became the 12 tribes of Israel. And so that's where Israel got its name from Jacob. This is why this period of time is called Jacob's trouble. It's really Israel's trouble. God's going to start dealing with Israel again. Remember, my whole argument here with you is that God is removing the church from the earth. Why? Because he's like, hey, Israel, we're gonna, we're, I'm coming back to you again now. we got to finish. we got some unfinished business here. He's going to start dealing with Israel again. And actually, it's a time of punishment. You're going to see in just a couple minutes how God actually poured, it's a time of God pouring out wrath, not only on Israel, but all of the unbelieving world. And so, um, let me read you, this is going to seem a little really crazy. We're, we're going to jump back into Daniel real quick. I want you to see this. In, in Daniel chapter 9, Again, I want you to see how this is definitely time for God to start dealing with Israel again and why it makes sense for us not to be here. We're not Israel. God's going to start dealing with Israel again. Daniel 9 says this. This is God speaking through an angel to Daniel. Here's what it says. Seventy weeks are decreed about who? What's it say? Your people. Who's, who's that? Israel. Daniel. Seventy weeks are decreed for your people, Daniel, the Jews, the Israel, and for your holy city, right, Jerusalem. And, and, and so this idea of 70 weeks, let me just remind you again, we talked about this when we went through Daniel. It is a picture of 70 seven-year periods, right? A week is a metaphor for a seven-year period. And so this is a prophetic word God is giving, saying, Daniel, for the nation of Israel, you got 70 weeks left. 
And then he's going to explain what's going to happen in these 70 weeks. And they, they get broken up. And like a lot of prophetic words, there's an immediate fulfillment, and then there's a future fulfillment. And that's what's happening here. He says, here's what's going to happen in these 70 weeks. Tell me if you think all of this has happened already, and the 70 weeks is done. Here's what's going to happen. Going to bring rebellion to an end, put a stop to sin, atone for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Does it sound like all of that's done? You'd say, no, there's no way that all of that is finished, right? To bring in everlasting righteousness, all you got to do is walk out the door this afternoon and be like, where is the everlasting righteousness? It, right? this is, this is a, and you would say, this is not yet done, right? This is not yet done. So the 70 weeks aren't yet done. So let's read on. Know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until a anointed one, this is going to be Jesus, the ruler, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So let's, let's, let's show this, what this looks like. When Daniel's being written back here, the book of Daniel, here's what he says. There's going to be a decree to rebuild Jerusalem. Jerusalem had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. And so there's going to be a period of time of seven weeks, which is seven, seven year periods, 49 years, and then 42 weeks, okay, which is going to bring us, no, not 42, 62, sorry, 62 weeks, which brings us to 69 weeks. Now listen, after those 62 weeks, after the first seven weeks, then 62 weeks, after those 62 weeks, the anointed one, verse 26, the anointed one will be cut off and have nothing. You know what that's a prophecy of? Jesus. After the 69 weeks, and if you were to go back and add up for the sake of time, we're not going to do it, from when the decree went out to rebuild Jerusalem to go seven weeks and then 62, you go 69 weeks, it equals exactly the time period of when Jesus came and was cut off, was crucified, where the Israelites rejected and cut off their own Savior. So, so far, we have seen 69 of the 70 weeks take place. But the 70th week hasn't taken place yet. When's that going to happen? It says this, the people of the coming ruler will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. And until the end, there will be war and desolations are decreed. And now the next verse seems to be talking about this future time period. It says this, verse 27, he will make a firm covenant with many for one week. Oh, there's our 70th week. Where, what's he talking about here? He's talking about 2,000 years later. He's talking about this week. So another nickname for Jacob's trouble, tribulation period, is this is the 70th week of Daniel. And here's what's going to happen. When the world or witnesses millions of Christians suddenly just disappearing, and chaos is in the world. There's going to be a, a leader that will, will, will rise up and, and be a supposed answer to the chaos that's in the world, will bring peace and bring stability, will unite the world together in a one-world type of government, will we'll create a one-world currency, and we'll, we'll actually make peace in the Middle East, where there has never been peace. We'll actually make peace. He's going to make a covenant with Israel. And he's going to act in to protect Israel from all of the enemies that want to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. This is what is being, he will make a firm covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering. So what's going to happen is this person that rises up, we know from other scriptures that he's actually called the Antichrist. That he's going to seem good, seem unifying, seem like he's good for the world. But halfway through this tribulation period, he's going to break the covenant. And literally, this is when all hell will break loose on the earth. He's going to break the covenant with Israel. He's going to set himself up in the temple of God and declare himself to be worshipped. It's called an abomination of desolation. That's what scripture calls it. And the abomination of desolation, it will be on a wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. 
God's going to take care of them. But this is what's going to happen in this tribulation period. And so all this to say, my, my first point that I'm spending way too much time on is this. This is a time where God starts dealing with Israel again, and we're not here. The, the part of the Bible that explains the tribulation period the, the, the most, gives the most detail, is found in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapters 6 through 18 describes the tribulation period. We're going to read some of the verses today. Twelve chapters describing this seven-year period. I want to ask you a question. Does anybody know how many times the word church appears in those 12 chapters? Zero. Zero. Why? She ain't here. <laughs> the church is not here. We're, we're gone. We've been removed from the earth. Okay? Reason number one. Reason number two. We've got to go faster. Okay? Listen faster. Here we go. Reason number two is this. The numerous, multiple scriptures stating that God will not pour his wrath out on us, his body, his son's bride, okay? Numerous scriptures that state that. I'm going to read you several scriptures that say this is a period of God's wrath being poured out during this seven-year period. I'm going to show you that, that convince you that this is time of God's judgment on the earth, and then I'm going to read you scriptures to say, God says, I won't do it to you, okay? So if he's not going to do it to us, how do we get by it? Here's how he has removed us from it, okay? Let me read you first, Revelation chapter 6 says this. The kings of the earth, oh, by the way, Revelation 6, where did I say the tribulation is explained? Revelation 6 to 18. So I'm in Revelation 6, the very beginning of it. The very beginning of it. Here's the verse. The kings of the earth, the nobles, the generals, the rich, the powerful, every slave and free person hid in caves. I'm telling you, this is going to be, it's going to make the last two and a half years that we just went through look like Disneyland. When, when this seven-year period is being brought onto the earth. They're going to hide in caves among rocks of the mountains, verse 16, and they're going to say to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of the one who's seated on the throne and from the what? From the wrath of the Lamb. This is what's happening during his time. It is the wrath of the Lamb, verse 17, because the great day of their wrath, their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? It is God pouring out wrath onto an unbelieving Israel and the world. And so let me read to you just portions of 6 through 18. I'm not going to read you 12 chapters. The way that it's framed up, is it's going to be a series of 21 judgments that God pours out on the earth. And it's framed up in the metaphor of there's a scroll that's going to be opened, but it has seven seals on the scroll. And so every seal has to be broken, and that's a judgment on the earth every time a seal is broken. And then there's seven trumpets that are going to be blown by angels. And those trumpets are seven judgments of God on the earth. And then there's seven more angels that are holding bowls of wrath that are poured out onto the earth during this time. Let me, 21 of them, let me just read you just so you get a, a picture of how horrible this time is going to be and how God is disciplining all the times where it seems like, why do the wicked prosper and why can't the good ever get ahead? And why not? I'm just telling you, God sees, God knows, God is watching. He's a good judge. He's a fair judge, and he's going to give people what they deserve. Here's, here's what, let me just read you the fourth seal, okay? I told you there's seven seals. I'm just going to pick one, the fourth seal. It says this, Revelation 6. I looked, and there was a pale green horse, the whole four horse of the apocalypse. The first four seals are four riders that ride out to the four corners of the earth, bringing this judgment onto the earth. This is the fourth rider. He's, he's on a pale green horse. Its rider's name was Death. Hades was following after him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, by famine, by plague, and by wild animals of the earth. So right away in the beginning, a quarter of the earth's population is killed by these instruments here. And that's just one seal of seven 
of 21. Let me move to the second category, is trumpets. Let me read you just two of the seven trumpets. Here's the first trumpet. The seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and hail and fire mixed with blood were hurled to the earth. So a third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up. All the green grass was burned up. Turn the page in your Bible. Let's go to the sixth trumpet. In Revelation 9, it says this. A third of the human race was killed by these three plagues. So you already had a quarter of the human race killed, and now the remaining, now you have a third of that remaining population killed by these three plagues, by fire, smoke, and the sulfur that came from their mouths. The rest of the people, watch this now, the rest of the people who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands to stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, wood, which cannot see, hear. These things are fake gods. They cannot walk. They did not repent of their murders and their sorceries and their sexual immorality or their thefts, right? The humankind race is going to dig in and defy God in the midst of judgment. Like a stubborn child that has a parent standing over them and say, you better, you better, and the kid's just going to stand there and shake their head. That's what the world is going. You can see, you can see as evil is increasing and we're finding new ways to be evil. We're digging in and saying no. It's during this time, somewhere in the middle, once this treaty is broken, that the Antichrist is going to kind of come out. It's going to be a coming out party. And, um, and there's going to be millions that are still going to follow him. And the, and the main reason they're going to follow him is he's going to make a decree that in order for you to live, in order for you to be able to work and be paid and go to the store and buy and sell, in order to, you're going to have to get some kind of mark. This is what's talked about now here in Revelation 13. So here I am in Revelation 13. I told you 6 through 18 describes it. We're, we're like halfway through. We're in Revelation 13. It says this. It makes everyone. It says it. It's not an it. It's going to be a person. Uh, this Antichrist makes everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, the beast's name or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast because it's the number of a person. Its number is 666. Right? And the idea in scripture is that six is the number of man, is the number of imperfection, but yet seven is the number of God, the number of perfection. And we don't know what it's going to look like. This is why, listen, young generation, this is why us older generation, the more we see technology developing and like, oh, you can get your bank account scanned into your arm. Oh, you can, you can pay things on the phone. You can, this is why us old people are like, eh, we get sideways about it. We're kind of leery because it's going this way. Some, at some point, at some point, you're not going to even need a phone. Right? You're just going to have all your stuff kind of in you. Or we, don't, we don't know how it's going to work, but in order to buy and sell, you're going to have to somehow take this kind of mark. I said two weeks ago, it's, you can see how we're moving this way. When I was a kid growing up, you read this verse, and you're like, that's crazy. How's that going to happen? And now you're like, you know, we can kind of see how it's going to happen, right? And so um, let me read you about the bulls. I, I, I've only read you one seal, two trumpets. Let me read you four bulls, just one through four. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go and pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first went, poured out his bowl on the earth, and severely painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshiped its image. The second poured out his bowl into the sea. It turned to blood, the sea, like that of a dead person, and all life in the sea died. The third poured out his bowl into the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. The fourth poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. You think today's hot? There ain't nothing, right, compared to what's going to be like. 
you just see just what an unbelievable, horrible time of judgment on the earth. And you got to step back and then just say, as the church, like, why would God put us through this? I thought Jesus took our wrath. I thought he drank the cup of his father's wrath. Right? Now let me read you some scriptures. We already read a couple of them in the Thessalonians. Let me read you scriptures that say where God says, I'm not going to put you through this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. We covered this in week 2. We didn't have all this context, but let me read it to you now so you understand what God is saying here. That we're going to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who what? Rescues us from the coming wrath. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, um, the Apostle John is speaking to churches there in chapters 2 and 3. Here we are, all right, let me get my little pen. Here we are, Revelation 6 through 18. So here we are in chapter 3. We're going to read something in chapter 3 before all this breaks out. Okay, it says this, because you have kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. Right? So God is giving us promises to say, listen, church, bride of Christ, you're saved from this. You're not going to go through this. I believe that's what these scriptures are saying, right? Well, in other words, how could Paul, in good consciousness, in 1 Thessalonians 4, write about the dead in Christ being raised, and we're going to meet Jesus, and then at the end say, and so encourage one another with these words, if we're going to be going through this hellacious time here on earth where God is pouring out punishment on the earth? Right? How could Paul say, he says it twice. He says it in chapter 4, he says it in chapter 5. Encourage one another with these words. You're like, That's not, no, no. Unless we're rescued from that. Unless there's one who comes back and rescues us from that. Here's reason number three. Why I believe that you should believe and live like this is the next thing on God's timeline. And that is this. How, we haven't talked about this. How does this period end? This whole tribulation period. Well, the armies of the earth start rising up and start getting ready for a fight. And then there is a king from heaven that comes back all the way down to earth. It is the second coming of Christ. And it is how the tribulation period ends with Jesus coming back as the conquering king that the Jews were looking for all the way back here, except Jesus came as a little baby born in Bethlehem and said weird things like, turn the other cheek and the first shall be last. So that's not very king-like. But now he comes back as a conquering king, and he's going to come back with us. It says it all in Scripture. And so here's my third question of, of why we should believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. How can we come down with him at his second coming if we didn't first go up with him at the rapture? You can't come down if you didn't go up. <laughs> Let me just read you a couple scriptures, okay? Um, the scriptures teach that when Jesus comes back, I told you two weeks ago, you got to start taking riding lessons. We're all going to get our own white horses. I, I meant it. It's, it says it in scripture. Let me read you a couple scriptures here. First Thessalonians 3. We're in Thessalonians chapter 3. We already read this a month ago. May he make your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus. What? With all his saints. With all his saints. First Thessalonians 4. For if we believe Jesus died and rose again, in the same way through Jesus, God will what? Bring with him those who have fallen asleep. How can they come with him if they haven't first gone up? Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, Jude wrote this. It was about all these that Enoch, Enoch was an Old Testament person. He was the seventh generation from Adam, Adam and Eve, Adam. They said this, look, the Lord is going to, this was a prophetic word talking about second coming Christ. The Lord comes with tens of thousands of his holy ones. Right? So now we have multiple verses. The most clear one, here we are in Revelation, Revelation 6 through 18. Here we are, Revelation 19. The very next chapter after the tribulation period ends is Jesus coming back. Let me read you Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider 
is called faithful and true. This is Jesus. He judges and he makes war with justice. By the way, he comes back and he disposes of these armies. He destroys them with the sword coming out of his mouth. And this is called the battle of Armageddon. (laughs) He judges and makes war with justice. His eyes were like a fiery flame. Many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God, verse 14. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses. There it is. Y'all get your own white horse wearing pure white linen. How can we come back with him if we didn't first go up with him? And reason number four. And we'll close with this, and this is so beautiful, so beautiful, is the reason number four is the imagery and the symbolism that is found in the Galilean wedding. I want to talk to you about about the Galilean wedding and the symbolism that's found in the Galilean wedding. Um, Jewish weddings, very different than how we do weddings today. Very different. Galilean weddings, even a little different than traditional Jewish weddings. Jesus was born in Galilee. Most of his ministry took place in Galilee. One of my favorite things when I got to visit Israel was to take a boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. This is how Galilean weddings, I want to get my notes so I don't miss it. This is how Galilean weddings happened and why I want you to see how this ties in. I know this is a lot and I know this feels like really like seminarish and thank you for staying with me. Please don't check out yet. You need to see this, how beautiful this is. Let me tell you about a Galilean wedding. Galilean wedding started with the father of the groom, the father of the groom picking a bride for his son choosing a bride for his son, meeting the family, talking with the father, presenting them with a dowry, and making a covenant. And then the son would come and meet the the girl, the daughter, for the first time. And when he would come to meet this bride-to-be, he would present her with a ring and a cup of wine. And if she would take the ring and she would drink the cup of wine... It was her way of saying, yes, I do. It was saying, yes. And it was an official covenant. A covenant was made. A contract was made. And at that point, the groom would then announce that he would not partake of wine again until their wedding day, their celebration. The bride and the groom would then separate. The bride would go back home with her bridesmaids, And the whole goal of the bride was to get ready for her wedding day to her groom, was to prepare herself to stay pure, to stay holy, to be a spotless bride, to be a bride that lived for the union with her groom. And the bridesmaids were there to help her get ready and to pick the dress and the fabric and to to make sure they weren't going to miss the groom coming. They would even towards the end, sleep in their wedding gown to be ready for when the groom would come. You're like, why did they have to do that? Well, here's what would happen. The groom, the groom would go back to his hometown and would go back to be with his father in his father's house where he grew up. And he would build a room off of his father's house. He would put an addition on his father's house. In the Middle East, they do things a little differently than now. We put our old people in homes now, but now but what we do is you stay with your family. You live together generations, and you built an addition, a room, onto the house. And the groom would finish building his room for his bride-to-be and would wait. And it was the father who would say to his son, Okay, son, you're done. You're ready. Go get your bride. And so he would do that, and the son would not know when it was time to go get his bride. He had to wait for the dad to tell him. And often the, the groom and his groomsmen would arrive back to the, the, the bride's town in the middle of the night. But they would announce, the groom is here. And they would blow a trumpet announcing the arrival of the groom. And so they had to get up and they had to get ready and they had to light their lamps and to be ready to come on out and to meet the groom because the bridal party was going to begin. The wedding was going to begin. And they would take the bride and they would put her in a chair and they would lift her up in the air 
and then carry her with the groom into the banquet hall where they would close the door and the wedding would go on for seven days. That's how long a Galilean wedding would last. Now, let me read to you a couple scriptures. And if you've grown up in the church, these perhaps will not be new to you. But I want you to see how unbelievably rich and sovereign and good God is in all that he's done. Here's the first scripture. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 says this. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. Listen, friends, I'm not here. You're not here because we're good people, because God needs us, because we chose him. No, no, no. We are only here because the Father chose us. He chose to open our spiritually blind eyes so that we could see Jesus for who he is. He chose to make our spiritually dead hearts alive so that we could receive Christ in our lives. Make no mistake about it. The Father chose us to be a bride for his groom, his son. Remember the Last Supper, the last night of his life? Jesus took the bread, broke the bread, took the cup. They passed around the cup. And Jesus said something that I never really understood. What did it mean when Jesus said it? Perhaps you too didn't understand, but maybe now you do. When Jesus said this at the Last Supper, I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine from now on until from this fruit of the vine, from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. What's Jesus saying? There's going to be a, a sweet reunion that's going to come. There's going to be a wedding day that's going to come. And I will not drink wine again until we sit down and we celebrate in my dad's kingdom at the wedding day. What about when Jesus said this in John 14? Jesus said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If not, I would have told you. I am going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself so that where I, may, where I am, you may be also. What about... Jesus, when he's explaining all this stuff to his disciples in Matthew 24 and Matthew 25, and the disciples say, when? Jesus, when? When is this going to happen? Jesus' answer, Matthew 24, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, except the Father alone. Jesus says, I don't even know. It's the Father alone that knows. And what about this weird parable Jesus told about these ten virgins that were supposed to be there. And the word for virgin can also be translated in the Greek to be bridesmaids. Let's just read it. Matthew 25. It says, At that time the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins or ten bridesmaids who took their lamps and they went out to meet the groom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. And when the foolish took their lamps, they didn't take oil with them. But the wise ones took oil in their flask with lamps. I mean, these, the, the, the hearers of this, they would have got it instantly because this was exactly how they did weddings in their culture. They got it instantly. When the groom, verse 5, when the groom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. Doesn't it feel like, like Jesus is delayed? Like there's a, I think of the scriptures in Peter where they say they mock. They're like, oh, he's going to come back? Oh, Jesus is coming back? Where is he coming back? Where is the sign of him coming back? Does it ever feel like he's delayed? Or church, is it possible that the church of the world, or at least the church in America, has fallen asleep thinking the groom is delayed and we're just living the good life here in this kingdom? In the middle of the night, there was a shout Here's the groom, come out to meet him. And then all the virgins got up and they trimmed their lamps and the foolish ones said to the wise ones, give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. And the wise ones answered, no, there won't be enough for us and for you. You gotta go instead and go to those who sell oil and go buy some for yourselves. And so they got up and when they'd gone to buy some, the groom arrived and those who were ready, they went in with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Therefore, be alert, because you don't know either the day or the hour. 
You catching all this? What, what, what's happening? And worship team, come on up. If we go up, Jesus comes down, takes us, we go up, God's, this is wrath, God's pouring out wrath during the tribulation period, we're up here for seven years, and we come back with him. So what are we doing up here for seven years? The Bible answers that. Let me read it to you. It's in Revelation 19, verse 6. This is Revelation 19, verse 11. I'm going to read you 19, verse 6. Before we come back, here's what's going on. Go ahead. You guys can take that. Thank you. Revelation 19, verse 6. Then I heard something. Listen to this. Like the voice of a vast multitude. It is the church that is in heaven. The bride has arrived. The wedding party has arrived. Like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder saying, Hallelujah, because our Lord God, the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory because the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself. And then he said to me, write, blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. He also said to me, these words of God are true. It's going to be this unbelievably sweet reunion, this wedding banquet where the church, the bride of Christ is there with Jesus, the groom. And while God is disciplining the disobedient there on earth, we are in heaven with our groom, with Jesus getting ready to come back with him. And so all of this, I believe, Scripture pretty clearly teaches the next thing on God's timeline is this rapture. And so I told you in the very beginning, I'm going to give you a lot of information. I just dumped a ton on you. And I, I, I'm, again, if this is your first time here, I'm kind of sorry. But I want to ask all of you, I want to ask all of you, So what? What do we do now? If this is true, which the Bible has hundreds of prophecies, you know what God's batting? He's batting a thousand. Every single one happened exactly the way he said. So if this is true, what should we be doing? Are we asleep? Are we like the sleepy bridesmaids that are there just wandering through life kind of not even being about the things that God would have us be about. We should be a bride getting ready to meet her groom, being ready to be about the groom's business, about the father's business. And I believe, church, that right now, I, I, I don't know, I'm not a prophet. I just read the Bible, study it. I think the days are short. I think the days are short, and I think it could be any time now. So I think we should be ready. I'm going to invite you to close your eyes, bow your heads, and would you just ask God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? 